more than you. Well, good morning. Maybe, maybe we should have Sunday school. <laughs> we need the healing. <laughs> I'm glad it recorded. If anybody like enjoyed it, I wasn't watching the game last night. I was utterly occupied, as I told a couple of you. Uh, we heard the shouts from about 60 yards away from our neighbors. <laughs> we thought, what just happened? What is going on? So we found out not too long later. So, well, it's good to be back together. It's been a couple weeks. I'm grateful to Tom, who uh, stepped in a couple weeks ago for me. Uh, we... <coughs> We did something we'd never done, uh, which was, uh, most of you know, our son, one of our sons plays soccer for, for Davidson, and they take a big trip every year, and we've never gone, so this is Andrew's last hurrah. So they went to Seattle two weeks ago uh, to play uh, two of the best teams in the Seattle area, so uh, we decided we'd go to Seattle and watch, watch a little soccer. So uh, appreciate Tom pitch-hitting for, for me last week. Uh, two weeks ago so we could go out and uh, see a little Seattle and uh, watch some soccer. So that was fun. How'd they do? Well, they, uh, they lo lost the first game against the University of Washington in double overtime. Oh, uh, that was, it was painful. Uh, that was on Friday night and then Sunday afternoon they got thumped pretty good by one of the top 20 teams in the country in the University of Seattle. So that was even more painful. <laughs> but, uh, but it was fun. It was fun to see him play. And uh, we'll go down and watch him play, uh, play Duke on Tuesday night. So uh, uh, I will be cheering for uh, Davidson. Yeah, no, no question. So. For David versus Goliath, yeah. <laughs> Cheer for the underdog. <coughs> and it was good to see so uh, many of you last week at uh, Northside. Uh, I know a lot of you couldn't make it, but a, a number of you were there. At least I saw a number of you, and I'm sure others that I didn't see were there. Um, the second year that we've done that, um, I don't know how you all feel about that, but it seems like a tremendous thing to do to me. And um, I hope you'll continue to support it. Um, it seems on one level to be such a simple thing, right? Um, I mean, really, the big picture of thing. I mean, like, for one Sunday out of the year, you, like, go somewhere else. You know, it just doesn't seem like a big deal. But it is a big deal, right? I mean, uh, for, at all kinds of levels. And um, you wouldn't be surprised to find out how many 
uh, congregations, a lot smaller than, than Muncie, just couldn't think it even thinkable that they could close their doors for one Sunday and go somewhere else. <laughs> so it takes some courage and some uh, no small measure of trust to sort of shut down. Um, as a lot of you know anything about church uh, life, um, you know, one of the worst things about snow days uh, when you cancel because the snow is like, uh, you never get that offering back. <laughs> Right. If you're on the inside of church circles, I mean, and, and I mean, you you live sometimes from week to week, and people who don't come, the church is shut down because of snow. You just don't get that offering back. Um, but we consider snow storms that shut down the church. That's an act of God, right? Doing it voluntarily is a very different thing. Um, so anyway. Um, I hope in whatever way you can, uh, I hope we continue to do that. I think it's really important for our role in the community. Um, we have this partnership with Northside in that community and it was just, it, it was hot, but we were under the tent and uh, God sent a breeze for most of the time. <laughs> and uh, it was just, it was a beautiful thing uh, to see us out there. Yeah, well. They hit nearly 500 people there. Yeah. Took in almost $3,800 to put toward the food bank. Yeah. Very successful. Almost 500 people were there. And um, we put together 195 food baskets for families at Northside who are in need. And we took in over $3,000 of additional offering to be able to put together more food baskets when those run out. So, uh, just in that way, it was a successful day. But I think there's also just something amazing about just showing up in an elementary school backyard on Sunday. I just kind of wondered what the neighbors were thinking, right? Like, what is that noise? Um, it sounds like a revival. And then they find out, but they're Methodists. <laughs> it's that downtown Methodist church. I mean, it ha people had to be scratching their heads, right? Um, we, should, we should act more often to make people scratch their heads about us, right? Sometimes we're a little too predictable. Um, so anyway, um, it was a beautiful thing. And it's wonderful to see you back there, Wayne. I know you're, I didn't get to see you a couple weeks ago. I heard you were here. And that's the thing that grieved me the most about being gone two weeks ago is I heard you were here. So it's great to, great to see you. I feel like all we're going to do today is announcements, but hopefully we'll get to a lesson at some point. One more announcement. I made the executive decision that I, that I am indeed going to try to shut down the Heart Sayings of Jesus series today. <laughs> so I think this is going to be the last one. We started the first Sunday in April. Uh, and I think today is going to be the last one. So we're going to start a new series next week. And so uh, one of the things I've loved most about the series was taking suggestions from your cards. It gave you a chance to have a part in this. And I went through the cards one more time last night. And I think about, I don't know, 95, 98% of what you put down uh, we dealt with. And so and we're going to deal with two or three more of those, finish up just about all of them today. But I put more cards back there this morning so I can get your input for the next series um, because it just helps me a lot to think, rather than just using my own experience, which is, like all of us, very limited, um, just one person, um, is to give you a chance to 
to speak in and to offer some suggestions. So one of the things I, I mentioned this summer that I'd like to do a series on what, I haven't decided what exactly we're going to call it, but it's something like uh, the gift of vulnerability. Um, most of us, if you're like me, don't necessarily think of vulnerability as a gift. It's something that I work really hard to avoid. A lot of times I don't like being vulnerable. Um, in fact, every morning I kind of, every Sunday morning I wake up and go, why am I going to stand in front of those people? <laughs> I don't really like doing that. Um, if you know how I'm wired, this is not really what I enjoy doing. Uh, um, well, it makes you believe in God. Uh, so what I've asked on the cards is, is, is for you to write down, um, when, when do you feel most vulnerable? In what kind of situations? When in the past? When are the times when you feel most vulnerable? And you don't, you don't have to sign them uh, unless you want to. Um, but if you could just jot down, you know, one or more things where, you know, when are the times, when are the situations either in the past or presently, when do you, when do you feel most vulnerable? And I'll collect those and I'll hopefully in some way over the next as yet unspecified weeks, who knows, it might be through 2017. I don't have any idea how long this is going to take. Depends on how much you give me. So uh, there are cards in the back, and you can start that today, so I'll have something to do, say something to say for next week. Uh, so there's going to be some other things on the back that you'll want to pick up, uh, some bookmarks and things for the, what the church is doing. Carol will talk about that uh, at the end. But uh, even today, if you could take the time just to, to write something down on your way out, that would help me a great deal. Okay, deal? You remember to do that at the end? Carol will remind you. Okay. Enough preliminaries. Are we done yet? No, okay, we still got 20 minutes. Okay. We have a lot to do. So we have, we have talks. I'm not going to try to recapitulate this whole series, obviously. Um, but we're going to be in, in Mark, uh, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9 today. It's a remarkable chapter. Um, we're not going to deal with the whole chapter, but there are two or three places in this chapter that people raise questions in their cards. And so uh, I thought we'd sort of handle these things together and see if we can weave them together in such a way that they might tell a coherent story. Um, one of the things about the Gospel of Mark that's quite a bit different than the Gospels of Matthew and Luke is that Matthew and Luke uh, have fairly large sections of Jesus' teaching. Um, you just get to hear Jesus' teaching in, in large blocks. Um, Matthew particularly, but the same even so in Luke. In Mark, you don't have that. Uh, you dig, Jesus does teach, but it's always in this, this narrative as he goes along. The narrative never really uh, leaves you. You don't sort of have Jesus stepping off stage and just teaching like to us or to the crowd. I mean, it's, it's, it's just sort of woven. Jesus' comments and wisdom and admonition about discipleship is just so sort of woven into uh, the very narrative of Mark. And there are two or three things that come up uh, in chapter 9. You may recall that in chapter 8 of Mark uh, is what some people think of as the sort of primary pivot toward the end of uh, chapter 8 in Mark, which we sometimes call Peter's good confession. 
right? Uh, where, G where Peter announces, uh, Jesus says, you know, who do people say that I am? And, and Peter says, you're the Christ. And then Jesus goes on to talk about how he's going to have to be betrayed and give himself up for death. And Peter, like, says, well, not on my watch, right? And is rebuked and get behind me, Satan. So you know all that. Um, and so at that point, um, Jesus begins to teach as he's moving along that he's that he's going towards the cross and that they're going to the cross right because Jesus says unless you take up your cross and follow me you, you have no part in me and uh, we talked about that one week that hard saying and then chapter 9 opens up with this odd statement that one of you asked about uh, I think it was Wallace Wallace had about 20 uh, that's why, the, if you really want to know why the thing was so long, it's because Wallace just kept cranking them out. <laughs> uh, you know, most of you like gave me one the first week or two the second week or whatever, and like Wallace every week comes in and fills out a card. <laughs> so, which was good. I mean, it gave me plenty of material. But at the, op the opening verse of chapter 9 says, And he said to them, meaning his disciples, Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God has come with power. And uh, that's perplexed a lot of people. This is one of those hard sayings that just sounds perplexing. I mean, it's not necessarily challenging per se. We're just like, what's he talking about? Um, and I think I can dispatch with this fairly easy. But that's never happened. <laughs> Um, that's why I waited till the end. I could actually give you one answer uh, after almost seven months. Um, we, we have talked a lot over the weeks here about the kingdom of God, right? And we've worked hard to say, to, to try to shift our thinking from whenever we hear the phrase kingdom of God to assume that we're talking about heaven in the sense of where you go when you die, if we think of heaven primarily in those terms. That Jesus, when he talks about the kingdom of God, is not really talking about our final resting place or anything like that. Uh, he's talking, because Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, like breaking in right here, right now, which is what we're praying for too, right? In the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so Jesus is saying, um, what has messed people up is people think, well, you know, the kingdom of God, still hasn't come, but Jesus said some people wouldn't die until they'd seen it come, so either he was just wrong or mistaken or something's off. Well, what's off is our assumption that the kingdom of God is heaven, right? Um, and in this sense, Jesus is not talking about that. He's talking about, you know, wherever you could make a good argument, think about that prayer again, that your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Most scholars think that those are sort of parallel phrases. I mean, that in some sense, God's kingdom comes wherever God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. And one of the central confessions of the church is, in Jesus, we see perfectly God's will done. <laughs> right? I mean, if you want to know what God's will looks like in flesh, incarnate, look at Jesus. That's that's what we say. And so it's in precisely in Jesus' ministry and death and resurrection that the kingdom came 
powerfully in his healings, in his, we'll, we'll talk about his uh, exorcisms here. I mean, Jesus says, you know, if by the finger of God I cast out demons, the kingdom of God is in your midst, right? Among you. It's right, right here, right now. Um, and so, so Jesus is saying, you know, some of you are going to see the kingdom come. Now, there, not all, everybody saw it, right? Uh, and most people didn't see it right away. I mean, they saw it, but they didn't see it. <laughs> Right? I mean, most people just saw uh, a Jewish peasant uh, itinerant preacher be executed by the Romans as a common criminal. That's what they saw. Um, over time, others were given eyes to see something else was going on. Right? And so they saw, before they tasted death, they saw the kingdom of God come with power. Not the kind of power they were expecting, as we'll see in this passage. This is what this is what, a lot of what chapter nine is about. Is what kind, that's why I think this saying is right here: the kingdom of God come with power, but not the power you expected. Okay, not the not the power you expected. And so, after that sort of announcement at the beginning of chapter nine, we have the story of the transfiguration, which we're not going to linger on. Um, this this incredible story of Jesus taking um, Peter, James, and John up to the high mountain, and Jesus is transfigured. And when Jesus comes down from the mountain, it turns out that there's a kind of uh, disturbance, and Jesus is trying to figure out oh, what's going on here. And it turns out this man had, had brought his, uh, his son, his child, uh, with them um, who'd had an evil spirit. And he'd asked the disciples to cast it out. And they, they couldn't do it. Which kind of frustrates Jesus a little bit. Um, like, what good are you? Didn't say that exactly. <laughs> it's Kenison rough paraphrase. Like, ah, oh, so frustrating pour myself into you guys. You can't do anything. I'll leave you for a few hours, you know, go up on the mountain, you know, think you can handle the details down here and come down. <laughs> so it's, it's really interesting. Jesus has this long conversation with this, this parent about like, well, tell me, tell me what's been going on. And they have this long conversation as well, you know, it's been, and so, and Jesus casts out the demon. And uh, then a few minutes later, they're, Jesus is meeting with the disciples like, Jesus, like, how come we couldn't do that? <laughs> I mean, they're a little embarrassed, right? It's like, we tried, we couldn't do it. Um, and Jesus said, oh, th these, these kind, they only come, that only ha happens with prayer or, or, and or fasting. And uh, it's like, oh, okay. Somebody write that down. You know, don't try to do this on your own. Um, right? Um, and so, story goes on. And so, they're, they're traveling, and it turns out they're traveling, and, they're, and Jesus hears another disturbance. Only this time, the disturbance is with the disciples. You know how you've gone on long trips, 
back in the day when you went on long trips by car. I still remember these from a child. Remember we used to, we drove to the, we drove up to the uh, northeast, and I think we spent about ninety percent of the time uh, reading elephant jokes. <laughs> any, of, any of you remember elephant jokes? There's only about six people in the world who know elephant jokes. Um, we had a book of elephant jokes. Uh, I won't. Yeah, I won't. Just one? Just one? Yeah. No, you don't. Yeah. Gosh. Why, why do um, why do elephants wear green caps? Green hats, caps. Don't know, do you? So they can tiptoe across pool tables without being seen. <laughs> now we know why we don't know it. Once you yeah. There'll be no extra charge for that. But this, this is what, this is what kept the peace in our car when there were six of us traveling to the northeast. Um, because otherwise you get just squabbles, right? I mean, it's, it's nothing worse than driving and you're really tired and you got the kids in the back just, it's like, do I have to pull over? <laughs> you don't want to hear those words, right? I mean, that means, ooh. Uh, and this is what Jesus is doing. Well, they're on foot, okay? And Jesus is saying, do I have to stop and come back and find out what's going on back there? What's going on back there? And they say, well, again, a little sheepish. We're kind of having this argument about who's the greatest. <laughs> Can you imagine? Can you imagine having to tell Jesus that? <laughs> I mean, he was just deflated because you couldn't cast out the demon. And now, now it's like, we were arguing over who's the greatest. Now let's give... Let's give the disciples a little credit. Um, it could be that they, I mean, they really did believe Jesus. They were going to see the kingdom come with power. And that maybe they'd heard stories now from some of the disciples saying, you should have seen what we saw on the mountain. I mean, I, I think he might be the one. And finally, you know, those really nasty brutish romans are they're they're on their way out and when jesus comes in all his glory i'm pretty sure i mean we're we're the inner circle i mean so they're sort of jockeying for cabinet positions right i mean you could hear john saying well i think i could be secretary of state you know i'm pretty level-headed uh you hear peter say i, I think i could be secretary of war Right? That's what they used to call it. Right? Um, and Jesus is just... <sighs> right? Really? So that's, that's, the converse, that's, the, that's the conversation they're having. And Jesus uh, says, whoever wants to be first in this kingdom has to be last. Has to be last and servant of all. And he took a little child... And put it among them, and taking it in his arms, he said, Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Whoever welcomes me welcomes not me, but the one who sent me. 
So it's like Jesus, like whatever you think this kingdom is, I mean, it's it's not it's not what you think it is, which is what we've heard all along. And you think, okay. And then they, every time they speak, it's like it just it gets worse. So John, level-headed John, says, "Teacher, apparently while you were gone, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him." because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a deed of power in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. Whoever is not against us is for us. For truly I tell you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you bear the name of Christ will by no means lose the reward. Now we have to remember here, I mean, this is so, gosh, I mean, you don't, yeah, let he who has ears and she to hear, it just sounds like so much squabbling that goes on in the church, <laughs> right? Um, but they're, they're not one of us. I mean, these are the disciples that couldn't cast out demons just a few minutes before. And now we have the nerve to say, but we saw someone casting out demons, but they weren't following us. We're part of our group. But they were casting out demons in your name. Uh, so we tried to stop them. And you can only imagine that they were expecting to be, John's expecting to be commended. Right? Why, why else would he have mentioned it? And, and instead he gets rebuked. I mean, I'm sure Jesus thinking, thinking, must have been thinking, well, maybe your first, maybe your first response might have been to thank the good Lord that the demon was cast out. Shouldn't you think that might have been the first thing? But no. Your first concern was, well, the person doing this casting out, what's their credentials? I mean, are they part of the right group? I mean, or were they part of that sort of sketchy church down the lane? You know, with where those people go? You know, who probably don't pray the right prayers and you know, have funky tent revivals. Oh, that's us now. <laughs> I mean, you, you can make your own list. I can make my own list of disqualifiers, can't you? Of, of my own brothers and sisters in Christ that I easily find myself suspicious of because they're not like us. Whatever, however we parse that, however we think about that. And this is going on back then. It's not new. Still a little discouraging. It's discouraging to Jesus. Jesus saying, you know, I, I think we're on the same team. I mean, they're casting out demons in my name. You know, no one who's invoking my name is not just going to turn around and say something evil of me. I mean, it's, it's a good, there's good reason to think 
I mean, they apparently knew enough and were relationship enough with God and the name of Jesus to actually invoke it in a way that it actually had power, which is something, it turns out, they didn't have. I mean, that's the sort of uh, unsettling part about this. I mean, they're critiquing someone that in their eyes they think somehow has to be less than them. And yet Jesus just seems to be evaluating the situation on the fruit of the situation. Just looks to him as though, I mean, he doesn't know who they are, but it's like, well, I don't know if they're invoking my name and the demons are scattering, then sounds like they're on our side. And so maybe you should act accordingly. Right? If they're not against us, and these people clearly aren't against us, then they, they, it looks like they're for us. Right? So maybe, maybe you ought to draw the circle just a little bit bigger, guys. I mean, I know you're, we just had this little argument and you're, you know, you're feeling really good about yourselves that you're part of the inner circle, jockeying for positions. But maybe, maybe you need to get out, get out, get off of yourself a little bit here, right? Maybe you need to broaden your circle a little bit. It's not just about you 12 special folks. I mean, you are special. I mean, I've devoted a lot of time to you, but it's not about you. Something bigger than you is going on here. It's called this, this thing I've been calling the kingdom. And the stakes are high. The stakes are high. And, and then he offers one of the starkest warnings um, anywhere in the Gospels. Verse 42, if any of you put a stumbling block before one of these little ones who believe in me, it would be better for you if a great millstone were hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea. The mafia didn't uh, come up with this idea themselves. Cement shoes. <laughs> Jesus had this thought, you know? Towns in Jesus' day had this, you know, out in the middle, you had your well, and you had a common place where you came to grind your grain and maybe press your olives, these giant stones pulled by uh, donkeys or something in a, in a kind of circle that would crush the grain. I mean, the things were enormous. Trust me, if one were, yeah, if one were hung around your neck, I mean, I don't know who'd throw it. I mean, that's the point. I mean, it's just, Jesus is, is clearly being hyperbolic here, but he's being deadly serious. This is not a joke. Now, I don't know exactly who Jesus means by these little ones where he means the children that he just had. That's legitimate possibility. It could just mean just anyone who's little in the faith. Um, 
you know how easy it is? I mean, one of the one of the challenges, one of the great challenges of being older in the faith is how easily we can unwittingly crush the faith and trust of new Christians who have that initial, we say, naive enthusiasm, right? There's, they, they've heard about Jesus, they, they feel like God is transforming them, and it, it's so, so easy for, for us unwittingly to say things or just, I mean, I, I run through my own mind about all the ways that I probably over, over the years have crushed people's faith, not even knowing I was doing it, just because I was completely unaware, right? Jesus says, you know, don't cause these little people to stumble, these little ones to stumble, because their faith and trust in me is everything. I mean, it, that's, the, that's the very foundation of this thing called the kingdom of God, is, is God's work in Christ and our response to that work, which is our little seeds of faith that have to be nurtured. And it's so easy just to stomp on them. Either because, as the disciples just did, uh, they're pretty sure that this group is not, is not inside the circle, right? Or a hundred other ways that their faith could be dismissed. And if that weren't a stark enough image, right? If that weren't a stark enough image, Jesus doesn't stop there. He's still talking about causing people to, to stumble and trip. They put obstacles up to people's faith. <laughs> if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. Better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and go to Gehenna, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. Better for you to enter life lame than for you to have two feet and be thrown into Gehenna. And if your eye causes you to stumble, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into Gehenna where their worm never dies and the fire is never quenched. Now, I think when we often hear this passage in isolation, we think of it sort of primarily in terms of individuals, and we're thinking in, in primarily uh, moral terms. And I don't suggest that Jesus isn't talking about that, but I think in context, Jesus is talking about something even broader than that. I think he's still talking about the very same thing. I mean, these things that he's talking about are, are good things. I mean, my hand, my foot, my eye, these are good things of God. But we can use them to cause us and other people to stumble. And the question I want us to wrestle with in the coming weeks, um, I was able to get up, had my, actually had my shower fixed this week, so I was able to linger a little longer. Hadn't had hot water in my shower for about a month. And so, uh, 
Um, that made for shorter shower times. Um, I actually had a long, warm shower today, so I had a thought. Here's the thought that I want to leave you with about this very troubling, very arresting image. I mean, we, we, I think we can say with some confidence that Jesus is not asking us to literally hack our limbs off. We don't have evidence from the early church that there were people walking around having done that. So that's that lets us off the hook a little bit, but only just a little. I mean, Jesus using this arresting image because he wants us to see the deep, deep seriousness of this. And here's one question that I think we might have to ask. As Muncie Church, uh, where are where are the really good things that we're doing that are, as, think of ourselves as the body of Christ here in this place, at this corner of Johnson City. Uh, where are the, the good things that we're doing that maybe unwittingly in our being together in the ways that we are, we're actually getting in the way of the gospel? That's a really hard question. And I don't have the answer to that. But I think if, if Jesus is right here, I mean, Jesus isn't, Jesus isn't saying, you know, just, you know, cut out that diseased part of your arm. Or that would be easy. Because then we could, look, we could look for the bad things and excise those. But Jesus is suggesting, you know, this kingdom of God stuff is so serious and we have to be so deliberate and intentional about not ourselves getting in the way of what God wants to do. That we have to even be aware of the ways in which in trying to be who we are, we might be getting in the way in ways we might be surprised about. Um, I, one of the things I love about teaching this class is um, I, I trust you to think about this um, because you, you are thoughtful, wise people. And I and you can think of things that I would never think of. Uh, but I think we have to wrestle with this. Um, I don't think anyone in this room wants to get in the way of what God is trying to do here in this place and in this city and in our little small corner of the world. But I suspect there are ways that we're, we're our worst enemies at times. And which is not to say that God's not doing beautiful things through Muncie. Don't hear me say that. Um, I mean, God, God has worked through Muncie. God will continue to work through Muncie. I feel absolutely confident about that. But I think what we have to wrestle with is what Jesus is, is sort of smacking the disciples in the face with right here. And that is, beware, don't, don't crush the faith, faith of these little ones. 
Um, be careful what you do. Uh, be careful how you live. Be careful how you gather. Uh, be careful how you think of yourselves. Uh, be careful how you welcome. Be careful how you identify yourselves. Be careful. I mean, we could just go on and on and on. Because for Jesus, this, this kingdom thing is, is the thing. <laughs> it is what he's bringing. And it's, it's what he's asking us to be part of. Um, Jesus is deadly serious about this. And so I would, I would encourage all of us to be, to be in prayer about where, where might we as a congregation, I mean, maybe, maybe God would reveal to us, you know, where are the places we're maybe getting in the way that we don't even see? Maybe we could be given eyes to see where we're, we're, we're thwarting, we're inhibiting, we're putting obstacles up to what God wants to do in ways that I think we wouldn't want to do if we knew, but maybe we just don't see. But those are hard words. Those are difficult words of Jesus. Um, we've, we've wrestled with a lot of them since April. And uh, I appreciate your uh, willingness. Um, I've been grateful that so many of you just kept coming back. Right? Um, these are hard things. Um, Jesus has a lot of hard things to say. Um, but I think he has hard things to say because what Jesus is about is important. And I think we all know that. And, um, and I think from time to time we have to be reminded of that. So I appreciate your being willing over the last several months for us to wrestle together with these things that Jesus is challenging us with. Let's pray. Gracious God, we, we are astonished that you have called us with all our warts and blemishes and weaknesses and faults and blind spots. You've called us to be part of this great restoration project of reconciling all things in Christ to bringing healing and wholeness to all that you have made. You've called us to be part of that, and we are nothing short of astonished that you might use us. And so we pray that you might give us eyes to see where unwittingly we might be getting in the way. Uh, we want to be part of what you're about. We want to be used as we can be, but we certainly don't want to be obstacles to your work. And so we pray humbly that you might give us eyes to see and that you might give us the courage to address what we see so that we truly more faithfully day by day as your people in this place might be instruments and servants of your coming kingdom. We pray this through Christ. Amen.